All right, have you ever heard of this uh, fable? I actually don't even know the name of it. It's, the donkey's got a weird name, but it's a fable about this donkey. And the idea is that he is uh, equally hungry and thirsty at the same time. And so he is led uh, to a basket that has some wheat in it, and then also a bucket that has some water in it. And the, and the donkey, so overwhelmed with this choice of hunger and thirst, is completely indecisive and ends up dying of both hunger and thirst, right? And I think, and as we're going to jump into this passage here, uh, we're going to be looking at maybe this idea of being indecisive on something, of looking at, do, we, do I have this choice and I have this choice, and, I, and I'm, I'm, leaved, uh, I'm left in the middle not knowing what to do. And so if you're here, you're checking out hope, you're checking out Christianity, well, man, you came uh, for a doozy of a week uh, in the sense of we're going to be digging into politics, which again, normally we don't, we don't do this. And yet as a pastor, I've never, I've never preached on the eve, right? In a couple weeks, uh, we're going to have a new president. And so uh, what, where, 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 where are we at here? Maybe some of you already voted. Maybe, maybe you're, you're, you're I, don't, I don't know where to go. Maybe like, oh, come, clearly I'm choosing the water over the wheat. Uh, and you can break that down however you want. And so this week, though, uh, today, this, this Sunday, we're going to be using a lot of scripture uh, and, and a lot of quotes. And I don't normally use a lot of quotes. I mean, I, I don't normally do that. Maybe, maybe one a week. Uh, I've got a lot this week. And, and again, because I'm not a, I'm not a politician. Uh, this happens anytime I, I preach on a topic that's kind of extra biblical, if you will. Uh, when, I, when I teach on science, uh, I meet with scientists and I read their books and I interview them, uh, not just because hey, I'm not a scientist. That's not, that's not who I am. And so it's the same, same with this. And so I've had to do a lot of extra research, if you will, and yet maintaining the idea that Scripture is my highest authority. And so we are going to look at this. And, and, and again, maybe we're the donkey. And yet I hope that at the same time, we can arrive at some solid, concrete conclusions when we look at this. So this is week five in our series, The Gospel Changes Everything. And so if you have uh, missed a few of those, that's okay. Uh, but the gospel changes everything. And I'm going to talk about what the gospel is here in just a minute. But again, the gospel proclamation that we preach the gospel and then we see something change in our lives, a commitment to the creation mandate. I'm going to flush that out here in a little bit as well. That should motivate us to love our neighbor and then seek human flourishing, even within the realm of politics. And so that's why we're going to be doing that. So last week, we looked at the myth of a political savior, that whoever is voted in as president will not save this, will not fix everything in our society, that only Christ can do that. Uh, and I, so we walked through what we called a, a biblical theology on politics. We started in the Old Testament. What did God teach about politics uh, right off the bat, this theocracy? And as Israel's understanding of this theocracy, and then should we still be in a theocracy today? The answer is no. That was for Israel only, that we're in this new covenant now, and that Christ has established his kingdom. And, but it's not fully here yet, but someday it will be firmly established. We went from Genesis, well, Deuteronomy, all the way to Revelation last week. But this week, uh, in particular, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip this quote. I read this Tim Keller quote last week. I'm going to just skip it for time's sake. Um, here we go. Giddy up. At the end of the week, not the end of the week, the end of the month, and one month from, from now, one of these men is going to be president, right? And, 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 and so I'm not, I'm not talking, so, well, let me. Last week, we kind of looked at the, the theology. We just used a lot of scripture last week. I don't think there was any, any quotes last week, just Bible. Except, well, except Keller, quote. One of these men is going to be president, period. 
unless something incredibly drastic happens, one of these men will be present. And, and one of them might, might invoke a, a feeling of, of joy and, and hope, and the other one may be anger and hatred, uh, and vice versa. And, all right, and if I know this congregation, uh, we're all over the map here, okay? And so what I want you to know, and so what, <laughs> whatever you're feeling about these men, I, I need you to remember that both of these men are made in the image of God that both of these men are loved by their Savior, whether they want to admit that or not, period. And yet, these men are not the hope of the world, Jesus is. And I can emphatically say that. Every, every single week, every week, regardless of what we're preaching on, regardless of what passage or what Bible or what book that we're, not what Bible, we only have one Bible, what book of the Bible that we're preaching through, I always ask to myself two questions every single week, and I've shared this before, but is Jesus the hero? Because at the end of this message, I don't want you to think Biden or Trump is the hero. It's Jesus, period. But the other answer, the other question that I have to ask myself the question of is, is the gospel the answer? So is Jesus the hero and is the gospel the answer to my problem? And I had to sit back and think, okay, but what is the problem? If I'm, if I'm saying the gospel speaks into this sin or this problem in my life, what is that problem? The problem that I'm going to be addressing this morning is not politics. It's not sinful to be political. The thing that I want to approach, the sin that I want to overcome is this idea that this, one of these individuals can save this, can fix this system. Or thinking that, that there's no use. I want to look at both opposite sides of this, right? Again, that kind of the donkey illustration of like, this will fix it or there's no hope in this thing. Can we balance this? Is there a third way of looking at that? So this morning, man, my prayer, I spent a lot of time on my knees praying this morning that I'm not here to be divisive. I'm going to say some things. I'm going to read some quotes. I'm not thinking about either one of these men, either one of their administrations or future administration. If you want to make that connection in your own mind, well, then I'll blame that on the Holy Spirit because that is not my goal. I simply want to make Jesus the hero, and I simply want to make the gospel the answer to all of our problems. So by doing that, I want to start off by looking at this idea, well, this is the sermon this week is going to be Christ our King. And, and so if you have your Bible or you know, a phone or whatever, feel free to turn to 1 Colossians 1. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 20, but we're going to be, again, we're going to be all over the place, but we'll be looking, sorry, did I say 1 Colossians? 1 Corinthians. Um, the abbreviations, uh, sometimes they just do like the CO thing and it gets very confusing. So my bad, as <laughs> 1 Corinthians, there is no 1 Colossians. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, no, now I'm confused. Or is it just Colossians? Whatever. I'm pretty sure it's 1 Corinthians 1, 15 through 20. Uh, someone can fact check me on that one. Here's where we're going to be going though. That, that, that slide's going to be wrong the entire sermon. Just, you know, <laughs> so... Uh, this is where we're at, though. Uh, Matt Chandler, he's a, a president of Acts 29, an organization that we're part of at, at Hope. Uh, he's down in Texas, and, and uh, he uses this phrase, and, and I've used this phrase, too, this, the, the phraseology that I use, the gospel door and the gospel path, that, that I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm saved, I walk through that door, but it doesn't just stop with that. It doesn't just stop with me telling people about Jesus. It then continues with me walking on this path of actually believing the gospel and living it out. So Chandler's language on this is he calls it the gospel on the ground and the gospel in the air. It's the exact same thing. But he calls it this gospel in the ground. This is personal. 
Right, this is my personal faith in Christ, in God. And we've used the same language and he uses very similar languages. I changed some of the words that I normally use just to keep some congruity here. But no, one is that there's God, there's a creator God who is good and created us good, but man sinned and fell short of the glory of God. And then Jesus came in and saves us and gives us that opportunity as long as we have faith, as long as we believe and we are redeemed. That's, that's that door. I walk through that door, but we don't just stop there. Right, we don't just choose the, the wheat here and ignore the water. There's, there's, another, there's another way. There's a third way, and that's the gospel in the air, this cosmic aspect. And just the whole story of the Bible, creation, fall, rescue, restoration, of looking at now the rest of all of life and the Bible and what it teaches on this topic, that there's these two aspects. Yes, there's my personal faith, but then there's my public faith. And I want to look at that. And then what does is, what is politics have to do with this idea of this gospel. And so I want to go back. We're going to go back and look at this idea of Jesus claiming his dominion. I, I briefly looked at this last week, and I will read some of the same verses in Acts, but I want to go back into Daniel. And this is prophecy, okay? So Daniel is going to, um, just a little backstory. It's King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon. He is hands down the most powerful king and, and, and kingdom and empire in the world. And, and probably you could argue that's even ever been incredibly powerful, just in charge of everything. I and mean, he made a, a, you know, a multiple hundred foot tall golden statue of himself that people worshiped, right? This guy was in charge. Uh, and if you remember the story, maybe not, but there's these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that didn't bow down and worship this idol of Nebuchadnezzar. And he tried to kill them. Capital punishment threw him into a fiery furnace, but God saved them from that. Daniel, this is Daniel who was thrown in the lion's den for following after Jesus, comes and stands before King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has this wild dream. And he's like, I don't know what's going on. Somebody help me. And he's like, oh yeah, that Daniel guy, he's interpreted my dreams before. He's a man of God. How about we go talk to Daniel? So Daniel comes and he says, your majesty looked and there was before you. So he's, he's interpreting his dream here for him. And there stood before you a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue is made of pure gold and its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet uh, partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching a rock, which was cut out, but not by human hands, it struck the statue in the feet of iron and clay and smashed them. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. And the wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that, stuck, uh, that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And so he's going to go on to interpret this dream. And so I'm, I could have just read the verses, but I'm just going to just kind of summarize it here. That the gold head, this beautiful golden head, and he's going to say, this is the Babylonian empire, King Nebuchadnezzar. This is you. You are, you are God's man for, for being the ruler of this world right now. But guess what? You're not going to last forever. And your kingdom is going to be conquered by the Medes and Persians. And that's going to be the silver and I don't have dates for all these different things. This is going to go from, you know, from 1000 BC all the way up until current day. So he says the silver is the Medes and the Persians. The bronze is going to be the, the Greeks as they then, right now, Alexander the Great, as he conquers you. The iron here is going to be the Roman Empire. It's going to go to the 400 BCs. And then you've got then these new empires 
And as you look, right, the, the, the quality of this, the, the, uh, the, the wealth of these things diminishes, right, as it goes down. And it's going to get down to the feet. And this, this is going to be other empires that are going to rise and fall. They're going to be somewhat made of iron and strong and want to fight, but they're going to be brittle. They're not going to last long like these other empires did. All right, so this is the dream that is given to him. And he's saying, but there's going to be some new kingdom, some other empire, right? This rock not made of human hands. So he says this in verse 44, in the time of those kings, which is, would be our time now, the bronze, or excuse me, the iron mixed with the clay, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut from the mountain, not by human hands, a rock that, has been, that broke the iron and the bronze, the clay and the silver and the gold to pieces. And so this is going to be this kind of introduction to the kingdom of God, that God's going to establish his kingdom. And we looked at this last week in the sense that Israel said, oh, this is why it's going to be a physical kingdom, that God's going to send the Messiah and the Messiah is going to rule and reign physically, earthly, kingly here and now. But as we see, that doesn't happen. Jesus shows up in the scene. We're skipping a lot of the book. But we get to Mark and Jesus on the scene and he says this over and over and over in his ministry. This is right off in Mark chapter one, right in the beginning. And he says, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, right? The kingdom of God is nigh. The kingdom of God is upon us, right? Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the gospel that I am here to save you. But they all still were thinking this is a physical kingdom. And Jesus says, no, 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 the kingdom's here. The kingdom is almost ready to, to burst forth into this land. And so, moving into Acts, after his suffering, so he dies, he's buried, and he raises from the dead, which is essential to everything that we believe, his resurrection from the dead, he presents himself to them, his disciples, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive, meaning that he ate some food in front of them, that he uh, talked with them, he was able to touch them. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and what? He spoke about the kingdom of God. He's saying, it's here. Do you understand? I, I raised from the dead. I conquered death in the grave. I am the firstborn among creation, as we're going to see. He says, this is, this is it. This is the kingdom, but it's not going to be this physical kingdom. It's going to be made of people, and that my kingdom will expand one soul at a time. That's not about taking ground physically. It's about winning the hearts and souls of men and women. And so again, as I looked at this last week, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes in a cloud, hid them from their sight, right? That as he is, as a king, claiming his territory, that he ascends into the heavens, just as, right, as I said last week, as Mufasa takes Simba up to the pinnacle and says, anything that, you're, that you can see here, the light touches, is your kingdom. And Jesus says, it's not just all of the earth, but it's all of the heavens as well. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on the earth. One, uh, this is a phenomenal systematic theology book. If you guys are like nerds like me and you like systematic theology, uh, this, is a, this is a phenomenal one. It's not an introduction to systematic. Uh, it's very deep, but it's very good because I, I had to Google this word, which made it kind of fun to, to look this up. He says this, the kingdom of God is embodied in the risen Christ who has been given 
Pleiopotentiary. Pleiopotentiary powers over the entire universe, right? Is, does anyone already know what that means? That was a new one for me. This is kind of like an ambassador, right, for a country to, to, that is, it has the authority necessarily to, to, get, to speak on behalf of a country, but pleiopotentiary uh, powers, I'd like phonetically sound it out for myself. Um, this is somebody, the definition here is full power of independent action on behalf of their government. That this is what Jesus has now, that he has full authority, but it says it's wait, he's waiting until he makes his enemies his footstool. That there's, he's waiting. As we looked at First Peter or Second Peter, what is he waiting for? He's waiting for more people to be saved. He's waiting for his kingdom to be expanded more and more in the souls and hearts of men and women. So I, I had to ask myself this question. But what is it about Jesus that makes him able to rule the human realm? Because when I read my scriptures about angels, for example, angels are extremely powerful. Don't mess with them. Right? They, 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 they slaughter thousands of people at times in the Old Testament. They are a formidable force. And so these spiritual beings are somehow able to interact in our physical realm. So why wouldn't one of these strong angels and one of these strong beings just say, hey, I'm going to set up my throne here. Like no one's going to mess with that thing. No one's going to touch that angel. Why? Why? So what is it about Jesus that makes him able to do this? Well, first Colossians. Did anyone fact check me here? Is this Corinthians? Oh, just Colossians. Okay, it's just Colossians. Forget the first. I'm glad. Okay, so Colossians 1, 15 through 20. I wasn't too far off. It says this, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Okay, so the son Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, we use this language. We talk about the Trinity. Uh, and I'm not going to really get into this right now, but we have the Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And we will say that, 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 the, that Jesus is the second member of the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Why, why do we use second and third? What is this order? Is it created order? No, that doesn't make any sense. That's God can't make another God because it would be created and therefore fall short of his godness, and they wouldn't be God, all right? All are God simultaneously. It's not revealed order because as we look at the Old Testament, that right in Genesis chapter two, we are introduced to the spirit of God. So why is Jesus in the second in this order here? This is why. Thomas Aquinas, brilliant thinker in the, in the ninth century, 10th, 10th century. I always get my centuries weird. Does anyone else do that mixed up? Like, oh, it's the 19th century. And you got to like, uh, oh yeah, 1800s. Um, Thomas Aquinas, though, brilliant thinker. He had this idea, right, that God and eternity passed. It's impossible to think of nothing, right? But God and eternity passed, that he is in Trinity. He's in by himself. But when you think about God, or when God, his high, the highest thing that God ever wants to have is actually himself. And that might sound selfish, but if you are the greatest actual thing imaginable, then anything else that's created or underneath you would never actually be good enough. That you could only be good enough. So his, his thoughts and everything are about himself in this sense. So Thomas Aquinas says this, that you have the father, but what happens is in this moment, and again, it happened eternity. It never, it never had a beginning because God has always been. He says this, that his thoughts go out into the universe, maybe seeking for something, but nothing else is satisfactory except for himself. And so his thoughts bend back to himself in eternity. And what does it do? It gives him the perfect image of who he is. 
If we had to sit down and write down a list of this is what I would change, this is the perfect me. I would change this about me physically. I would change this about me spiritually. I would change this about me mentally. When God thinks about that to himself, nothing changes. His perfect image of himself is himself, and his perfect image for himself is his son. And in harmony, the son and the father, as they coexist and their relationship and their love for one another, this is the Holy Spirit. And we have this trinity simultaneously going forth that they don't need us So the son is the image of the invisible God, but he's the firstborn over all creation. Again, this doesn't mean he was created first. And Paul's going to answer this question right here at the end of the, the passage there. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Though when you use this idea of firstborn, he's the firstborn to rise from the dead physically so that in everything he might have supremacy for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. All of his perfect imaging of himself was dwelt in the son physically on earth. So we have this incarnation of Jesus taking on flesh and Karl Barth says this, why is it that Jesus has the authority and the power over us in this physical kingdom? It says Christ became holy and utterly one with man not in an act of secret or even public uh, condescension. I can't read this. Condescension, sorry, let me start that over. Not in an act of secret or even public condescension, right? Coming down like a king for a change of clothing, uh, donning a beggar's rags and mingling with the crowd, but belonging to them in every way by being no more and no less than one of them, by having no point of reference except them. He became one of them, not in order to renounce fellowship with them when the game was over, like the king exchanging again the beggar's rags for his kingly robes, not in order to leave again the table where he had seated himself with the publicans and sinners and to find a better place, but in order to be one of the uh, definitively, definitively as well as originally, unashamed to call them brethren, to all eternity because he was their brother from all eternity. That this was always the plan, that he was going to take on flesh. And when you think of Jesus Christ right now, I don't want you to think of some spirit in the sky. He is a human being. He has a body. And he's seated in the heavenly realms with all authority, waiting for that moment to come back. And he will because he loves us and he is our king because he is one of us and yet he is otherworldly in that he is God. So how vast is this kingdom? Well, we can, again, look at first Colossians. We look at Colossians. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created. And we see this in Genesis chapter uh, one and verse one, we see God the father. In verse two, we see God the spirit. And in verse three, we have God spoke the word that Christ is there in that moment. The word became flesh. For in him, all things were created, the things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. So what things, how vast is his authority? Well, it's over the spiritual and the physical. This is a a video, not a video, it's a screenshot of a video uh, from these, uh, I I don't know, the name of the company I think is... uh, uh, 
oh, Bible Project, excuse me, the Bible Project. And I probably could have just showed the video, but I, I decided not to, and I'll explain it, but it'll probably take me longer to explain it than just to watch the video. But here's the, here's the idea. That in the beginning, you've got these two things. You've got the blue sphere and the red sphere. You've got the spiritual realm, which is heaven, the, the blue sphere. And you've got the earth, this physical kingdom, the red sphere. But in the beginning, in the garden, these were perfectly overlapped. It was all purple. That God walked with his people. He saw them. He talked with them. When you look at the, the, the images that we see in the Garden of Eden, it's all these, these uh, angels and we, this fruit and it's beautiful in the trees. Just like when we get into this fantastical language of the book of Revelation, it's very, very similar. But they're completely overlapping. But what happens? Sin happens. And those two realms, the spiritual realm and the physical realm, rip apart. And then the earth, the physical kingdom is just engrossed with sin. And this spiritual realm, God can no longer be with his people. But what happens every once in a while in the scriptures, we get this glimpse where there's, it starts to come back together. We have this tabernacle in the Old Testament, which just means that God is going to dwell with his people. But what happens? He has, he's contained within this tent and these beautiful things, again, these images of cherubim and the, and the Ark of the Covenant, and all this beautifulness, right, is contained in this area but humans can't go into that area unless given explicit permission and God doesn't dare come out of that space. It's contained and that happens within the temple, but then Jesus comes and what's he do? He dies on the cross and then he gives the church's mandate to go into all the world, preaching the gospel, making disciples about everything that he's ever taught baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so the church then begins to go into that physical, sinful kingdom and make these little pockets of cleanness, of purple, if you will, where you see the spiritual realm over, overlapping the physical realm. But this doesn't mean that the church goes in by force. Unfortunately, the church has done that historically, right? But we're not amassing an army. We're not, we're not trying to buy the park across the street. We're not trying to purchase land opportunities in the cities. We go forth in the kingdom of God that Jesus taught about and to preach the gospel so that people know him better, so that they love him and that it becomes more purple and little dots of purple start to spring up all over that earth. And will it ever become fully purple with us trying to do that? No, it won't happen until Christ returns and that fully then is embraced and we see a new heaven and a new earth. So what we see is that there is one king, one king, but he is over everything. There's one kingdom, but there are these two realms and someday he's going to unite those realms again. Now, I want to introduce something that you might not be too familiar with. I hinted at this last week. This is the idea of two kingdoms. Two kingdoms theory, two kingdoms doctrine, whatever you want to call it. And this, again, may not be familiar, and that's why I'm going to explain it. And, and I don't agree with this, and yet I can guarantee, and this is true of myself, that there are aspects of this two kingdoms theory that I actually believe that I say, oh, God is in control of this, but he's not necessarily in control of that. And I'll explain what I mean. This is what two kingdoms theory means. That there is Christ's kingdom, which is the church, but then there's, there's this common kingdom outside of the church that involves everything else. That could be politics, that could be business, it could be education, finance, it could be anything. God's not, Christ isn't in control of that kingdom. He's in control of the church. And so we should only focus on the church. Now we're gonna intermingle 
We're going to do things good and bad outside of the church. I can run a marathon and we can, we can do a host of marathon right now and, and raise uh, money and awareness for breast cancer or fill in the blank for anything. And that's good, but that's not spiritual. And so therefore, right, that's, that's still secular, if you will. And so Christ's kingdom is spiritual and good. And let's focus on that. Let's preach the gospel. Let's go through that gospel door. Let's get the gospel on the ground and let's leave that stuff for other people. Let's not put our hope in that thing because Christ isn't involved in that. Robert Lethem, again, in his systematic theology book, he explains this. He says, there's a radical dualism between the realms of creation and redemption. The world operates in the common kingdom, okay, that's that out there, in which believers and unbelievers alike function. Its basic mode of operation is natural law written on the human hearts from creation. So why do we have these laws to, to care for others, to not commit murder? Well, it's got nothing to do with the church. It has to do with the law written on their hearts. Its destiny is not redemption, but ultimately destruction, which I'll talk about in just a minute. Christians are to work in it, to do good works, to use their gifts, but they are to do so alongside unbelievers. Special revelation found in the Bible is not applicable in that realm. And any attempt to redeem it for Christ, for Christ is futile, Indeed, it can savor any attempt to earn salvation by good works. In other words, you say, oh, we're just going to go into that kingdom. Yeah, we're going to do good things. And maybe if we fix this problem, then maybe that will put me in a better standing with God. And he said, no, these are, this is not what the two kingdoms is. So they would say it's not just one king over one kingdom that's in two realms. They would say there's one king over one of the two kingdoms. Just the spiritual realm. Just the church. It's got nothing to do with this physical aspect. And again, you might say, that's not me. Or you, you might be said, it's this two-kingdom idea. What do you even tell? I don't believe that. I don't believe that Jesus is only has the authority of spiritual realms. We just read passages from Colossians saying he's over all things. So I don't believe that. And yet, I'm telling you right now, practically, we do this. And it runs deep in American Christianity. So I want to talk about some warnings. First off, this idea of the two kingdoms actually comes from Luther, my boy, right? If you know me, I, I love Luther, but this was a big aspect. This was a big one of his teachings. In the sense of there was no separation of church and state, that you had this spiritual realm and this worldly secular realm. And so he said, we're going to make armies and we're going to go conquer them with the sword so that we can introduce the spiritual realm. That, this is where this comes from. And, this, and this, this perpetuated itself, not just, it didn't just start with Luther, it went on before that as well. So if you grew up Lutheran, and even like me, I wasn't Lutheran, I've always been Baptist, but I'm telling you, there's some things here that I go, oh yeah, I, I was taught that. Or I believe that if it wasn't even taught explicitly. We just walked through Second Peter not that long ago, but they will teach that the earth will be destroyed. This physical world will be destroyed. He says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. When he returns physically to rule and to reign, it will come like a thief. We don't know when it's going to happen. And the heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. They're going to use that word of destroyed and say this earth, it's toast. It's gone. So guess what? Here's the, here's the implications of that, right? If you think that this earth is just going to be crumpled up and thrown away, and then God's going to make something new, completely new from scratch, do you, why would you care about global warming? It, let's just say the earth melted in a thousand years. Wouldn't that just spur on and speed up the return of Christ? 
right? That's the way of thinking here. Why, why care about the natural world? Why care about deforestation? Why care about uh, the animals and all these different things? Listen, I'm not a, I'm not a, I love animals, uh, right? I've got a, I've got a, and I'm not trying to be silly here, but I've got a giant, I've got like a, like a 18 pound T-bone steak uh, dry aging in my fridge right now, right? I'm not, I don't, I'm not like an animal hugger here, but is there something that we can say, should we do better in the creation mandate to subdue the earth? And again, that Hebrew word was kabosh, and it doesn't mean squelch it, just rule it with all, with an iron fist. It should not be done with violence, we should do this in a peaceful manner. But again, if I think this is all going to be destroyed, well, then what's the point? But again, but Peter here is not talking about complete and utter destruction of just going to burn it all up and throw it away and start something new. He uses the same language that when God destroyed the earth with the flood, that he purifies it with, with water, with that element. And he's saying he's going to purify it again by fire. And again, Paul says this in Romans chapter 8. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, right? In that day, right? When God comes back. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, right? Human beings chose to sin and therefore even make creation suffer. But by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and will be brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And even he's talking about continually until Christ returns. That the earth is crying out. I don't mean mother earth and any of that stuff. I don't mean that. But, but this is what God has called us to take care of. And if we think it's all just going to burn, then what's it matter? Now, this is this idea of two kingdoms. You, you tracking with me? That was, a, that was a Chandler thing. Track it with me? Another problem with this view is it encourages passivity to matters outside of the church. Now, I'm going to read a quote here by a guy named Beach, and he's going to uh, quote within this quote uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm going to give a warning because I'm just, I'm just reading. I'm reading a historian, and he's going to talk about Nazi Germany. When I'm talking about Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler and the Fuhrer, I'm not talking about any administration or future administration. If you want to make those connections, that's up to you. I'm simply reading the warnings of having this two-kingdom idea. He says this, It's quiet as tendency in encouraging passivity toward the status quo paved the way for tyranny. As has been frequently noted, an unforeseen implication of the Lutheran understanding of the two kingdoms doctrine emerged with Hitler's rise to power and the ideology of national socialism. The German Christians, accustomed to the Lutheran doctrine of the two kingdoms, readily capitulated to the Fuhrer and accommodated the church to function in support of the same. Now, what's he saying here? If the government only matters in this common kingdom, in the secular world, then it doesn't matter what my Bible teaches because that's just this world. And if I think that Adolf Hitler will give me power, will give me uh, more fame and will promote our, na and our nationalism and take over things and we can spread our, our good teachings to the world, well, that's the secular world. And hey, man, Hitler, yeah, man. I, I vote that, yeah, I'm going to vote for Hitler here. Yeah, he's doing some atrocities. He's doing some things that I would disagree with in Scripture. I keep pointing up there again because the Bible is the highest authority. 
Right, do you understand here? He says, however, the confessing church, which was most often the reformed church, which were reformed, because again, I want to stay on the, on the right side of history. How is the scripture informing even my politics? However, the confessing church viewed matters quite differently. The difference was aptly expressed in Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Who was Dietrich Bonhoeffer? He was a theologian, German theologian, reformed pastor. And he looked at what was happening around him and he was like, ah, this is not good. What Hitler's doing, what he's claiming as he's rounding up the Jews, this is not good, something's gotta be done. Now, we could talk about and debate this all day long, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer goes and he has a failed assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler, which is in the movie Valkyrie when they try to do the bomb thing, it's failed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is arrested. Now, should he have tried to attempt murder? Uh, that's a whole nother debate, right? But Dietrich Bonhoeffer's arrested. And every wedding I've ever done, some of you are in here, I've read a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer and, he's, and he wrote a wedding from a prison cell and he's gonna be executed for treason. But this guy said, there's something about what the Bible teaches that says there's not these two kingdoms here. So again, the, di the difference was aptly expressed in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's words of resistance when he said, we must deny that there are God-willed autonomous spheres of life which are exempt from the lordship of Christ and do not need to listen to his word. We've got to deny this. What belongs to Christ is not a holy, sacred district of the world, but the whole world. So again, Colossians, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, his church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. That every single aspect of our life, Christ screams out, that is mine whether it's political, financial, educational, whatever, his authority isn't limited to just inside the church. It's not just the gospel on the ground. It's not just preaching the gospel and seeing people get saved. Yes, that's it. But it's not just that wheat bucket and the water bucket over here. It's both. And so the problem, again, with this two-kingdom mindset is it leaves us with a division of sacred and secular. You may have heard this, right? Well, that's secular music or that's uh, secular art or whatever it may be, right? That oh, I'm a Christian, but if you want to be a Christian artist, you have to paint something biblical, right? But is that really the case? Can I not just be an artist and be a Christian? Can I not just be, and Martin Luther talks about this as well, though, even though he had this two-kingdom mindset, but can I be a cobbler? Can I make shoes? That doesn't mean I have to put little crosses on my shoes. It means I just make the best shoes I can possibly make. I'm going to be a Christian cobbler. But we have this mindset of this split between sacred and secular. And I'm telling you, since Jesus died on the cross, this isn't true. There are things that may be worldly and evil, but it doesn't mean that they cannot be redeemed in some way, shape, or form. This happens on the cross Jesus dies and he cries out, it is finished. 
And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And what happens? At that moment, Matthew 27, 51, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was a massive curtain inside Herod's temple. Not Herod's temple, yeah, the, the, the temple that was built in Jerusalem, the second temple. King Herod builds this temple and this massive curtain, the, the, it, was, it was four to five inches thick and it was 30 to 40 feet tall and it's torn from the top to bottom. What happens? What happens in that moment? Remember that the space, the purple realm in between the blue and the red as it comes together and God is contained in that area that the world cannot go in and what is sacred, what is Jesus, what is God cannot come out in that moment. What happens? That veil is ripped in half because now Jesus says, this is all mine. And I'm going to go out and invade this and you're going to be in this presence as well. There's no longer this sacred and secular. He says, it's mine. So in terms of politics and how we vote and who should we vote for and all these different things, we're left with, it's Jesus who is king. It's Jesus who is the hero. But can this help? Yeah, I think it can. So we get out, we vote, we talk about these things. We have disagreements with one another on who we should vote for as long as scripture remains our highest authority. Again, Robert Lethem says this, I love this. We are in a war. There is an enemy, and that enemy is no gentleman prepared to play by rules on a level playing field. When the world around, or world around us is, re is relinquished to a supposedly neutral common kingdom, the enemy will seize control. And in many ways, he has done so and is increasingly advancing. If we think, as Christians, we don't have any say in what happens outside the church, Satan's like, yes. So what do we do in this upcoming election? Maybe you've already voted. I know some of you have. What do we do? What we do is we take our kingdom of God, we take the scripture and we vote our, convention, our convictions, our conscience, because Biden, Trump, not the hero, not the hero. And yet the church can make a profound difference when we stand up for our biblical Convictions. I'm not going to stand up here and say, hey, vote this way or vote this way or don't vote that way or demonize this person or hero wise, hero, make a hero out of that person. I'm not going to say that. But I want you to think biblically and scripturally over these issues and not to demonize anybody, that everybody is made in the image of God. So again, just kind of closing with this Colossians passage, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ and through him, to reconcile to himself, to make right, to give peace to himself, all things, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I want to end with one last quote and just a conclusion and we'll sing some songs. It says, the maker of those who understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, sorry, the marker of those who understand the gospel of Jesus Christ is that when they stumble and fall, when they screw up, when they vote for the wrong person, when they don't vote, when they vote third party, like I did four years ago, they run to God and not from him because they clearly understand that their acceptance before God is not predicated upon their behavior, but in the righteous life of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death. 
that there's nothing that I can do in this upcoming election that Jesus hasn't already said, I forgive you, and guess what? I'm in control. I'm okay in Jesus. So in closing, in gospel application, is there any part of this world of my life that I do not think Christ is king over? Right? And that two kingdom idea is that, oh, that's secular, that's world, that's this, that's that. Oh, that's the political realm. I don't know, let's focus on this. It's yes. And I ended this the same exact gospel occasion as last week. Do you think that if my political politician wins or was voted in that everything would be fixed? Do I put too much stock in a political head, political administration, or do I not put enough stock in politics? We can make a difference. And we do that with Christ as our supreme leader. So will you bow and close with me? We'll sing a couple songs and we'll have a time of communion, which I'll explain after I pray here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. I thank you that you are king, that you are seated on your throne in position of power and rule and authority, that you are good. That there's nothing in this world, inside the church or outside the church, that you haven't said, that's mine. That there's not one aspect of our hearts that you have said, oh, that's, that's mine. Even though we may relinquish to give you authority, you have authority. And one of these days, you are going to come back and claim what is rightfully yours. Everything on heaven and on earth. And until that day, would you help us to fulfill the great commandment, the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel so that all can hear, so that all can be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And to your name we pray. Amen.